Hi, I'm Malcolm Maiden, and welcome to the Yarra Exchange podcast, covering what's happening in the markets and the world of business generally, and brought to you by the independent Australian fund manager, Yarra Capital Management. My guest today is Ian McFarlane, an economist who became this country's top central banker between 1996 and 2006, and then a company director and author. He was educated at Melbourne High School and Monash University and worked overseas for eight years, including six with the OECD, before returning to join the Reserve Bank of Australia in 1979. In 1992, he was appointed Deputy Governor of the RBA by the Keating Government. And in 1996, he was appointed Governor by the Howard Government. Ian's signature is alongside that of the then Treasurer, Peter Costello, on the 1996 statement on the conduct of monetary policy that formalised the central bank's independence from the federal government and its focus on an inflation-targeting monetary policy. He sat on the International Advisory Board of Goldman Sachs from 2007 to 2016 and has also found time to write a modern history of central banking. Ian, welcome. Thank you very much, Malcolm. Your decade as Governor of the Reserve Bank from 1996 to 2006 was a period of low inflation and solid growth overall. But there were also some seeds of later challenges. The Asian financial crisis in 1997, the global recession in 2001 that followed the collapse of the dot-com telco bubble, and the renewed boom in asset prices that finally burst in the global financial crisis of 2008-2009 after you left the reserve. In 2006, you delivered the Boyer lectures and published them as a search for stability. You traverse central bank economic and monetary management from World War II onwards in that book. And one of the things that struck me as I read it was that monetary policy has never been a cakewalk. Sometimes central banks get it wrong before they get it right, don't they? That's right. Tension between what needed to be done and what politicians and governments wanted, short-term gains in employment being one thing and no rate rises being another. And I should mention, by the way, that we're recording this just before the Reserve Bank holds its May meeting, where uh, it may uh, again contemplate a rise in rates. Anyway, that tension was a complication for the central banks until they won their independence at the end of the 20th century, Ian. Well, thanks, um, Malcolm. Um, You're right. Um, During my period, I felt confident that we we had a full independence. we obviously we never followed directives from Canberra, and more importantly, we didn't actually have to get permission or approval. We just went ahead and did what we thought was right. Before then, we actually had to get permission, but after we came to this agreement, we got full independence. So the Reserve Bank would meet. It would decide, for example, it needed rates to go up. It yes. would then go to the government and say, "We want to do this. Is that okay?" Yeah, that's, that's before, yeah. uh, uh, but after the agreement, uh, we would, of course, inform the government uh, and the Treasurer, in my time it was uh, Peter Costello, often had his own views and he'd express his own views forcibly to me, but privately, but he never went public afterwards and made any comments one way or the other. Uh, John Howard, on the other hand, who was Prime Minister, he was often publicly critical of the Reserve Bank particularly when we were raising rates. Mm. But that didn't worry me because I thought he wasn't actually trying to influence us. He was trying to disassociate his government from it. And he was also the fact that he was critical of Reserve Bank monetary policy confirmed that it was 
Reserve Bank monetary policy, not the government's monetary policy. Prior to that, the government could never criticise monetary policy because they would be criticising their own monetary policy. But after we gained independence, uh, the government could, if it wished, disassociate itself from our monetary policy or criticise it. So I think it was a pretty happy arrangement, really, during that time. And to the best of my knowledge, it still continues along those lines. Well, you ended your Boyer lectures uh, in 2006 with what I think was a very prescient observation. And it was that while more traditional economic issues were by that time being well managed by central banks, the banks that were independent and aware that low inflation was the key to stable growth, the increasing weight and complexity of financial markets themselves raised a risk of asset price bubbles and busts that central banks were less obviously equipped to handle. And in the decade and a half after the GFC, ultra-easy monetary policy has underwritten a, a really big asset price boom, a bubble, most people would say. All assets have soared on the so-called discount rate effect of effectively zero rates, which became even more powerful when monetary policy was further eased in response to the COVID pandemic. And now, as the pandemic itself heads into, I think, what we all hope is a slow but steady retreat, and as activity picks up, COVID-related supply chain problems and the Ukraine crisis are generating price rises worldwide that central banks first said were transitory and are now moving to quell with tighter monetary policy, rate rises and a windback of quantitative easing. To quote nobody in particular, if I were searching for stability, I wouldn't be starting off from here, would I? I think that nobody in particular was an Irishman. Yes. But he's right. It's not a good starting point that we're in. And, uh, but I think the outlook will depend largely on US monetary policy. And the situation here is unusual in that we haven't got as much past history to guide us. First, we have a um, unique starting point in that we've just experienced the easiest monetary policy in recorded history more than a decade of effectively zero interest rates uh, and at least four bouts of QE in the US. That's the first unusual aspect. And the second, I think, is interesting in that the long drawn out period of easy money envisaged, I think, that eventually sub 2% inflation would creep up and at some point poke its nose over 3%. Then the Fed would say, look, what a good job we've done. No one thought that six years of sub 2% inflation would be transformed into 8.5% inflation in the space of a little over a year. Before we look at how this might develop, can I ask you, have the central banks made a mistake with zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing? There's not a lot of evidence so far that they can successfully put this process into reverse, is there? Uh, I just want to say I don't think history will judge this period of central banking favourably. I won't say any more. I, I think it was an experiment, uh, an experiment which would have probably been unthinkable during my working life. That's a really interesting uh, comment, Ian. Can I tease you out a little bit more on that? Well, even though... It was the easiest monetary policy ever. To me, it was not as though the Fed 
was facing a huge obstacle. It's not as though they were facing the depression. In fact, they weren't even facing a recession during that period between the GFC and uh, 2019. Uh, US GDP grew at 2.2% per annum. That's not great. It'd be nice if it was a little bit higher, but it's hardly a real disaster. Uh, and inflation remained positive during that period. So it seemed to me that the remedy was out of all proportion to the problem that was needed to be solved. One of the things that I, I remember writing about back then was that there was, for the first time really in living memory, a concern about deflation instead of inflation. Do you think that that might have been a factor? Well, it was a concern about it. Yes. It didn't happen. No. And in fact, I think the public were probably puzzled at how big the reaction was, given that inflation was, I think, for example, in Australia at average 1.6%. The difference between 1.6% and 2% seems to me, and I think seems to the public, to be trivial. 2% being the bottom yeah. bound of the 2 to 3% yeah. that the reserve yeah. In inflation-targeting terms, a difference as small as that seems as though it didn't call for such a huge reaction. In my view, there was always a need to return monetary policy to something resembling normal. Now, I felt that even in the low inflation period, and I think many in the Fed agreed, but not the majority. Now, with the surge of inflation, of course, everyone agrees. So how will they do it? There is a bit of a guide. Although I characterised the post-GFC period in the US as one of zero interest rates, there was a period within this where an attempt was made to restore monetary policy to normal. Between the end of 2015 and the end of 2018, the Fed funds rate was raised in nine steps from 0.1% to 2.4%. QE was reversed and bond sales were made. It seemed to be working well until 2019 well, unfortunately then, in, at that time, several financial markets seized up, including the vital repo market and also parts of the commercial lending market associated with private equity. There were too many participants in financial markets who were too highly geared and too dependent on being able to roll over borrowings when they matured and replace them with another borrowing of similar terms. Uh, when they weren't able to do this, they had to dump assets and so a type of bank run occurred and the Fed stepped in to buy assets and later to cut interest rates. In fact, the Fed stepped in to buy assets off hedge funds. Again, something that I would have thought unthinkable 10 years earlier. Their hand had been forced by financial markets. And of course, remember, this is the thing that people forget. This happened in September 2019. It was not a response to COVID. It happened before COVID. Of course, again, when COVID occurred, there was another response, which I'm not going to argue against. But the interesting thing about that was an attempt was made to return interest rates to normality and to unwind the Fed's balance sheet, spread over about three years, but the Fed capitulated and had to go back to cutting rates and reinstituting QE. We should probably explain why the repo market is so important. It's the, it's the overnight cash market, as well, I understand it's, it's more it. than that. The repo market's really the, the money market. The money market is the borrowing and lending 
uh, in terms of less than a year. And traditionally it used to be done by lending against collateral, but it's actually more convenient to do it by outright purchases of an asset and then uh, reselling it, whatever the term is. If it's overnight, you resell it next day. If it's two weeks, you resell it in two weeks' time at an agreed price. It's mechanically the same as, as just borrowing and lending, but it's actually outright ownership changes hands for very short periods under repos. And it's an important window for the Reserve Bank. Oh, yes. In Australia, that's how the money market operates, uh, as in the US. The Reserve Bank's in the uh, repo market nearly every day. Either supplying liquidity or taking it out, depending on how how it views things. Yes. It's not in there because it needs the money. It's in there because it's deliberately either putting cash into the system or taking it out. And that's the most convenient way of doing it. So this situation we had between 2015 and the end of 2018, where the Federal Reserve in the United States tried to withdraw this never-before-seen easiness of monetary policy and failed after the market started to freeze up. What does that tell us about where we're at today? Well, it tells us two things. I think the first thing is that it might be possible to go from where we are now to 2.5% Fed funds rate without too much trouble in the sense that that's happened before. They got as far as naught to 2.5% before they had to call it off. That's the first thing it tells you. But the second thing it tells me is that the limiting influence on how far the Fed will be able to raise the Fed funds rate is not going to be the general economy. It's going to be uh, financial markets. At some point there will be a problem, a reaction in financial markets, which will cause them either to back off for a while or, as they did then, back off permanently and go back to the old system. Now, I don't think they're going to back off permanently like they did last time. I think last time, uh, this is during the course of 2019, they could comfort themselves when they backed off by saying, well, inflation is still below 2%. No point having a fight because inflation is still below 2%. They can't do that next time. Now, I'm not saying that inflation will still be 8.5%, but inflation will be an important consideration. And so it will be a battle between the Fed wanting to put up rates to rein in inflation and the financial markets having to adjust to this. And in a sense, we're looking to see who's going to win. If the same thing happens again, has happened at the end of 2018 and the repo market essentially freezes up. Could the central banks try and just push past that or would that mean that the markets would win again? Well, one of the things that happens when the markets freeze up is that actually sends short-term interest rates through the roof because everyone has to dump assets because they can't get the borrowing. Yes, they got very, very high in 2018. Yeah. So I think Uh, mechanically, they have to provide the cash, but they don't have to change interest rates. They can stick with the interest rate they've got uh, and they could use their open market operations to put cash into the system. So I think they don't have to back off like they did last time. Because super high interest rates might be aberrational, but they're actually in the direction they want to go anyway. No, they're not going to let them, they wouldn't let 
the rates go, I mean, in 2019, I think this is a time when the Fed funds rate was 0.1, Treasury note rates went over 9%. Mm. They don't want that. That is a result of people sort of panicking. They don't want people to panic. They would provide the cash at whatever the interest rate is that they have reached at that point. So that in a sense, they've got two instruments. They've got the interest rate, which they can set, and they've got the amount of cash they put in or take out of the system, including by QE if they need to. Uh, and I think they would hold the line on interest rates and be prepared to provide cash if necessary. But I think that would, would cause them to pause for quite a long time. And in fact, one can even envisage a situation where they just reach the point where they can't go any further and they have to accept whatever the rate of inflation is by then. How big is the task for them? I mean, all things being equal, how far do you think the Fed funds rate has got to go to get on top of this about of inflation that, we've, that, that, that emerged so suddenly last year? Yes, well, you're right. It all depends on um, the extent to which inflation comes down. I think we all have to agree that a lot of the inflation at the moment is definitely transitory. It's because demand recovered so much quicker from COVID than supply could recover. Uh, and then it was given a second help along by uh, the Ukraine situation. Uh, and so we've had spikes in particularly energy prices, but also food prices. Uh, some of which will, is definitely temporary. And so most people who are forecasting inflation have a profile which is like an inverted V. And the top of that inverted V is somewhere around where we are, and then it comes down after that. And I can accept that, that it will probably come down. The question is, does it come down to where the Fed wants it to come down to, or does it not come down that far? And my feeling is that it is extremely optimistic to think it's going to come down to 2%. I think it's more likely it would settle somewhere at 3 or 4 Because you've got to remember, real wages have fallen in the US quite sharply this year. Prices have jumped ahead and wages haven't caught up. And yet the, this supply-side price pressure is, uh, to a significant extent, caused by labour shortages. As you said, demand yeah. took off and they couldn't put enough boots on the ground yeah. to satisfy it. Yeah. You, you would think at some point that materialises as uh, wage price pressure. Yeah, well, I think this inverted V is not going to be a sharp V. The run-up sharp has been very sharp. Surprise everyone how quickly it's gone up and it'll come down, but it's not going to come down as quickly as people think. Very hard to see energy prices plunging. Mind you, they don't have to. For inflation to come down, these prices that jumped up only have to stabilise at a high level and inflation will come down. So, the, yeah, I'm pretty confident inflation will come down, but I'm not at all confident about its end point. And I, my suspicion is the end point's going to be something closer to three or four. And if it's closer to like three or four, the 2.8% Fed funds rate, which is still the latest figure that's come out of the US, is obviously going to be inadequate. At the same time, however, these rates still, they're, well, they're in line with where we were basically uh, before the GFC. That's that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Getting back into that 
pre-GFC environment. But, of course, they're still much lower than people who lived through the 70s and 80s experienced. Yeah, well, I think you're bringing up the subject of what is the neutral interest rate. Mm. And I don't think there's any likelihood of having to see interest rates as high as we saw in the 70s and 80s. I'm not, in no way am I predicting that. The, the concept of neutral interest rate makes a lot of sense. It's got a long history. The problem is it's very hard to actually measure and put a number on it. In my time, I think I'm on the record of saying that it was three or three and a half percent real rate. In other words, inflation plus three percent. Recent estimates I've seen are much lower than that. I think the Fed is saying it's one percent. The last thing I saw from the Reserve Bank of Australia said one half percent. So I suppose what I'm saying is if inflation comes down but it gets down to three or four percent, then you're really looking at a neutral Fed funds rate of four or five percent. Assuming they can get there. Assuming they can get there. I think at the moment that hasn't fully been taken into account. I think the markets have quickly adjusted to the fact that in Australia the overnight cash rate or in the US the Fed funds rate are going to have to go up quickly in the short run. In fact, I think they've overestimated how quickly they're going to go up. I don't think they could go as fast as is currently being assumed. I think they've overestimated the quickness of the response, given we've started, finally started, but I think they've underestimated what the terminal interest rate will be. I think it'll have to be higher than people are thinking about at the moment. I think what I'm, I'm heading towards is saying that there are two or three outcomes that are possible. Well, two, one outcome is that the Fed is not able to put the uh, rates up high enough and just settles on living with a higher rate of inflation, uh, three or four or five percent. Can't get the neutral rate up to the yeah, point where it should it. be. They can't get it to where, where it is really needed to be because of the reaction in financial markets. The second possibility is that the reaction in financial markets is so big that it spreads to the, the economy as a whole and we get a big collapse in demand and a recession. And this brings down inflation. That's another possibility. The bit that I can't foresee is what is actually currently assumed by the Fed, which is you put interest rates up moderately, uh, the economy conti continues to grow, and inflation comes down to 2% after a few years. I think that is just far too optimistic. And I'm not sure that the Fed would nece necessarily still sign up to that, but that's the implication of what they produced in their, their latest Open Market Committee report in March, at this sort of Pollyanna result. I don't think that's likely. And you said in the search for stability, no country with an entrenched inflation problem has significantly reduced inflation without it occurring in the context of a recession. So is, is that what we're needing to face up to well, here? Well, I'll stand by that. And that was the result of quite a lot of research. But that was written pre-GFC. Looking back over the previous decades, that has been the experience. But the important thing I said there was an entrenched inflationary situation. It's not clear yet whether we have got an entrenched inflationary situation because we know that quite a lot of it is transitory. And even 
that scenario I sketched out where it goes back to three or four, peaks at eight and a half or nine or something and goes back to three or four, that's nothing like what we had in the, in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, nothing like that. So I, I wouldn't be as adamant if I was writing that sentence now. So I think we've, we've got quite a lot of hope that interest rates will definitely go up. They won't go up quite as high as I think they should. Inflation will come down. It won't go down as far as I would like it to go down, but we live with that outcome. And that there will be a growth slowdown, but not necessarily a 70s type situation where we discovered the word stagflation. Yeah, I don't think that is in any way inevitable. It might happen, but we certainly have a, a slowdown in the economy. We'll certainly have contractionary effects on the economy. I mean, monetary policy doesn't just miraculously jump from interest rates to the rate of inflation. It has to go through the real economy. It has to re reduce demand in the real economy, take the pressure off various markets, make people, either business and labour, have second thoughts about their ability to raise rates uh, because the demand situation is a lot weaker. So there has to be a contractionary effect on the economy. The, the question is, does it have to be so contractionary as, as to cause a recession? Uh, it doesn't necessarily, but it could. Just looking at uh, what the markets have done with this so far, as you say, they've absorbed the news that rates are going to rise reasonably well. That's the dots are basically built into the market in the States, a more aggressive increase in rates than our Reserve Bank is talking about is in the markets here. Looking back at other asset price booms or bubbles, how much of a correction do you think the sort of central bank move we're talking about happening globally is likely this time around? Well, you're asking me, I think, to uh, be a sort of a stock analyst yes, and work out and what's are. going to happen. And I think there obviously has to be quite a big reaction there. In fact, we've started to see it. I mean, there is always parts of the financial market where people are overgeared and vulnerable. Businesses that depend on being constantly able to roll over their borrowings. And when that fails, they fail. Uh, we've already had, for example, in uh, last year, we had things like Greensills, Arcagis, fail in a very benign econ uh, economic environment. And now, as we go into 2022, we've seen a lot of speculative or particularly tech stocks, which I think are referred to these days as long-duration equities, uh, equities that actually aren't earning a lot of money at the moment, but uh, we hope they will in the future. We're seeing big reactions there, and I, I'm sure that's going to continue. Is gearing in households, financial markets and sovereign balance sheets as much of a factor today as it was in the GFC? I get the sense that corporate gearing is lower, sovereign gearing is higher because countries bailed out the financial sector to a significant extent during the GFC, uh, and that household gearing is high. I think the US and Australia are very different in this respect. I think the US, whenever you look for the effects of easy money in the US, it's Wall Street. The ingenuity with which new financial products are introduced and new ways of gearing up sleepy things to make them more profitable 
always occurs in the US. And that's, and that's the, the vulnerability of the US. In Australia, I think periods of easy money uh, mainly affect the household sector and the housing market. And that's what's happened here. who have had a very big run up in house prices. And if we're looking for the, the sector that is most highly geared, it's not the business sector, it's not the government, it's actually the household sector. And that sounds a bit frightening, but it's not as frightening as it seems because most people don't have a mortgage. And certainly the proportion of people who have a, um, a very big mortgage recently taken out is still quite a small proportion of the population. But I think what you're alluding to is that most people with mortgages are, are well ahead in their repayment schedule because they didn't reduce their monthly payment when interest rates went down. And there's also a lot of money in offset accounts. And, and the other thing that people forget is actually bank forbearance. Banks don't sell you up immediately and miss one payment. That's the last thing banks want to do. And I think the final point I'd make is that in Australia, people keep servicing their mortgage even when things are tough. They cut back on other expenditure and they keep servicing their mortgage. If, you look, if you're looking for mortgage delinquencies, what causes mortgage delinquencies in Australia? It's unemployment. It's not rising interest rates. The correlation with interest rates is very weak. The correlation with unemployment is much stronger. It's wage growth and unemployment that the Reserve Bank really for many years here has been focusing on. I wouldn't say many years. I'd say very recently. I'd say uh, most of the time... It was inflation. Yeah, it, it was. I think, well, for a start, got a bit, a bit sympathetic to the Reserve Bank here. I think, for example, when the current governor came in, he didn't touch interest rates for three years. And I think that was the right thing to do. And he was heavily criticised by the economics profession for not putting them down more. And all the argument was about inflation targeting and missing the inflation target. It's really only, I think, in the last two years, maybe three, that the rhetoric has shifted to trying to get unemployment down, which, of course, unemployment has fallen. Mm. Unemployment is um, not just here, but in the US, the unemployment rate is 3.6%. Yeah. But that's boom time uh, unemployment rate. You asked in 2006 in the search for stability, has the increase in complexity made financial markets riskier? And the jury is out on this question. I don't think it's out anymore. It certainly has made financial markets riskier. Uh, in fact, some of the biggest financial entities in the system run trading desks that would actually prefer there to be uh, volatility rather than stability because they make more dough when prices are whipsawing around. Is that much of a problem for the central banks as they try and put a lid on what's happening right now? Well, I think there's two questions there. The first one about did financial innovation make things riskier or not? I think the answer to that, yes, they did. For example, the GFC could not have happened had not securitisation been invented. Yes. The second one, you're right that if you're on a trading desk, you like a bit of volatility and you get bored if there isn't any and you don't make any money. They like a bit of volatility, but not too much. They don't want to have enough volatility to have a rerun of the GFC. And the Australian Financial Review has just reported on a speech that you've just given to the Institute of Actuaries. And in that speech, 
which was headlined, What Has Capitalism Done For Me Lately? Uh, you spoke about the widening gap between the poor and the very rich. Can you just talk a little bit to us about that? Yeah, well, the speech I gave centred around the fact that I'm surprised that there hasn't been more uh, reaction or anger, particularly from younger people, about the widening in inequality in a number of countries, the most extreme example being the US, but it's happened here as well. I'm surprised that it's older people like me who seem to notice it. And um, a lot of younger people just sort of, I think, just take it for, uh, for granted. They just think, well, that's life. Uh, they're not aware that there was actually a period of much lower inequality in the 50s and 60s than uh, what we have now. The aspect that makes it interesting from an Australian perspective is that there's an intergenerational aspect to it. The owners of capital, wealth of any form, have done very well compared to people who don't own any capital or wealth and are relying on their wage and salary incomes. And when you explain it that way, it's pretty clear that you're saying that the older generation has done much better than the younger generation. And I think that is a problem in Australia. And it's actually exemplified by the, the massive increase in house prices, where they've gone from one stage three times uh, incomes to 10 times incomes. And so you have a generation of uh, people have found it, finding it very difficult to buy a house. And we've seen the home ownership rate in Australia decline for quite a while now. We used to be very proud of it, had a very high, by international standards, home ownership rate, but it's been declining, as has the birth rate. And to me, these are very big issues. I think part of the issue is that the older people are the ones who have noticed it, but they've been the beneficiaries, so they're not going to get up and march in the street. And I think a lot of the younger generations sort of just accept it. They just uh, don't think there's any alternative. That's just the way the world is. What, what is arguably, arguably over-reliance of this country on taxing personal income is one of the issues that you mentioned. Yes. Well, that's uh, another aspect of it. We tax capital very lightly. We, you tax the income on capital, but we don't have a wealth tax. We don't have an inheritance tax. And yet we, and we rely more on taxing incomes than most other countries do. So once again, the, it's the older generation owns the bit that's lightly taxed and the younger generation are dependent on the bit that's highly taxed. And I think you've got to, should be opening up a big conversation about that. It becomes very difficult because you have to mention words like wealth tax or inheritance tax. And you know, that's sort of a red rag to a ball. And house prices, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, really, house prices are responding to buy-side pressure, I think, more than anything, and I don't know what you do about it. People say, we have to increase the supply, but that, you, that's not a switch. You can't just turn it on. Yeah, I know. It's true that whatever we do, we're going to have pretty high house prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. You know, any city in the world where there's a good supply of jobs, reasonable paying jobs, you know, London, New York, obviously, Hong Kong, Singapore, Toronto, Vancouver, Auckland, you name it, is going to have relatively high house prices. As people, A, compete to live there, 
and B, compete to live in the select parts of those cities. So you can't just hope for anything resembling sort of equality in house prices between different regions. Uh, but uh, we've made life difficult for ourselves, particularly in two ways, and this one is really controversial, that the preferment we're given to owner-occupied housing. It's the only asset class where you pay no tax on the running yield or on the capital gains. And it's a good thing to buy anyhow, even without that. Then you give that extra tax preferment and it becomes something uh, that you know, people desperately compete for. And then secondly, the thing that has always irritated me is our uh, system of negative gearing is the most generous in the world. The, the concept of negative gearing, of being able to write off the cost of debt, I, I don't object to that. But it has to be for things that pass a, a proper business test. And so much of the people buying investment properties, which is Australia leads the world in that no other country has such a huge amount of their wealth tied up in investment properties as Australia. And so that's encouraged it as well. So we've, we've had something which was going to be a bit of a problem and we've turned it into a, a bigger problem. It seems to me that the interest on loans taken out to purchase an investment property do pass the business test. Uh, now, if you have a look at it, and uh, we did a lot of work on this in 2003 when there was a housing price boom, and we reckoned that just putting in plausible numbers, a high proportion of those investment loans would only become cash flow positive on reasonable expectation of inflation and interest rates after 40 or 50 years. So they would never pass a thin capitalisation rule. Uh, they were pure speculations on, on the increase in the price of the asset. They were a bit like Bitcoin. Well, you can deduct uh, the interest on loans that you take out to purchase shares, and the, that methodology would also apply to investments in growth stocks that aren't, aren't paying dividends. Uh, you're buying them because you think the share price is going to go up. Well, the thing is, A, that hasn't been a problem, I think, because uh, lenders don't lend you very much money on that because they know that's purely speculative. So it became a problem on housing. It's not a problem on speculative stocks. We're talking about major tax restructuring to address this issue. And the question then becomes, who's got the political will to do it, I guess? Well, no one has. No one has. Well, that's why I'm, I'm saying that the only way you could resolve the problem would involve a very large fall in house prices. And no one's going to go to an election saying, we've got a set of policies that's going to bring about a very large fall in house prices. Just looking at quantitative easing, Ian, modern monetary theory, what's your definition of modern monetary theory? And was that QE, or is that QE, stealth modern monetary theory? Well, it, mechanically, you're right. QE is a form of monetizing a budget deficit or what we used to call printing money, uh, the same as what is proposed by modern monetary theory. But I don't think for a minute that uh, Ben Bernanke did it because he'd been reading about modern monetary theory, which incidentally is like the Holy Roman Empire, which someone pointed out was neither holy, Roman or an empire. And mon modern monetary theory is neither modern, monetary or a theory. It's, it's old, it's the thing we used to do, which is just the government would spend money and not finance it by borrowing from the public. Modern monetary theory is simply saying, let's go back 
to financing the budget deficit the way we used to, which is not by borrowing from the public. So it's really fiscal policy or debt management. It's not monetary policy. And it's an old way of doing it, which we used to do here, so it's not modern. And it's not really a theory because it's just saying, let's go back to doing what we used to do. Although the evangelical followers of the MMT theory or non-theory, I think take it a step further by arguing that there's no practical limit to how much money you can print. Well, mechanically, there is no. There is none. You you can do it forever. Uh, And that sounds um, revolutionary, but it's not revolutionary at all. Governments were always able to just spend money. They didn't have to work out how to finance it before they spent it. They weren't like a household that had to work out where the income was coming in before they spent it. So to that extent, uh, what they're saying is true, but it was always true. And anyone who knew anything about economics knew that. The, the question was not whether you could physically continue to spend. The question was always about whether it was wise to continue to spend. Ian, let's have a look at your uh, work as an author. We've been talking about the search for stability quite a lot so far, but in 2019, I think it was, there was the publication of a purely historical work that you wrote titled 10 Remarkable Australians. They made their mark on the world but were forgotten. Why did you write that? I wrote it because I'd read a lot of history and biography, most of which is not about Australia, it's about other places, authors, English or American or Canadian. And I found on two or three occasions, I was reading some book, and this remarkable Australian popped up who I'd never heard of, who had obviously had a very interesting and colourful life. And I made a mental note to find out more about these people. And eventually I had four or five of these people I'd uh, I'd come across, and I made the mental note that when I've got time, I'd like to write uh, a book telling about the exploits and the life of these people. Eventually, the number rose to 10. They were all born before 1900, and they were all dead when I started writing it, but they'd all had totally different lives, but lives where they'd actually achieved prominence and international recognition at a time when Australia was hardly known. We were a very small outpost, and these people were making a name for themselves around the world. And most of them were quite famous at one stage. In fact, I think of those 10, I think eight of the 10 have biographies written of them a long time ago and out of print now. And so I decided to put them together into a book of 10 essays, biographical essays, so that people could read, you could read one, next night read another one, and they're all completely different, but they're all interesting and in some cases very adventurous. There are 10 chapters for 10 characters, and there's a favourite of mine in there, George Ernest Morrison. Tell us about him. Morrison was um, born in Geelong, and as a young man, he was noted for making adventurous trips, including his most famous one, which he made at the age of 21, which was walking from the Gulf of Carpentaria to Melbourne. Now, this was only 20 years after Burke and Wills had died attempting the same thing. Things had improved a bit in those 20 years, but it was still an astonishing feat. Mm. He then, still a very young man, decided to explore the inner parts of uh, Papua New Guinea in the process of which he got speared twice, once through the face and once through the stomach. 
That put an end to his career as an as a explorer. He qualifies a doctor. Did some other interesting travels. He walked from um, uh, Shanghai to Burma and wrote a book about it. On the strength of that book, he was uh, offered a position at the Times, London, to be their what was then Peking correspondent. Uh, this was a very important position. This was long before we had think tanks and academics uh, specialising in foreign affairs. We either had the, the Foreign Office or newspapers were the only two sources of information. And he became the acknowledged expert on what was happening in China. And he lived in China for about 20 years or 25 years. During, during uh, what decades? Uh, he, from about 1890 to about 1910. He was there during the Boxer Rebellion. In the Boxer Rebellion, he managed to get shot whilst defending the uh, British garrison. As you do. Yes. He was an excellent marksman and very brave man. And he was sort of number two in the defence of the British legation during the Boxer Rebellion. And he had an incredibly colourful life. And um, he kept a diary the whole time. And it was one of the wittiest diaries you could read. He, he, he was a good natural writer with a, a lot of wit. He died in uh, uh, just after the First World War, by which time he'd left the Times and was the political advisor to the President of China. Well, that's one amazing life, and there are ten in the book. And congratulations on it. And I want to thank you so much for coming along. That was a really fascinating chat. Well, thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it very much as well. The Yarra Exchange was brought to you by Yarra Capital Management and hosted by me, Mal Maiden. If you liked what you heard, and we hope that you did, then hit the subscribe button and share it. And lastly, the Yarra Exchange podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. Any actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.